0: This is Money Guide with Mary Stirk from Stirk Financial Services. Now, here's Mary Stirk.
1: I want to talk about managing your portfolio because I think it's really important for people to educate themselves about what goes into actually managing a portfolio. There's a lot of people out there who like to do it themselves, which I think is fabulous. And um, there's people who like to do some of it themselves. And and then there's people who like to do none of it themselves. But they're often curious about what actually goes into this. So um, we're going to take some time to uh, go over kind of the critical pieces today of what it takes to manage a portfolio. So the first thing... That anybody needs to do when they are looking at an investment portfolio is you have to define how much risk you're willing to take. And that's called your risk tolerance level. So Kelsey, tell us a little bit about what a risk tolerance level is.
0: A risk tolerance level, uh, you can usually find a questionnaire of some kind online or um, in books and things like that that talk about investing. But it'll help you define how much risk you're wanting to take in a portfolio. So someone who is conservative in their views of investing is going to have a much different allocation than somebody who's aggressive uh, would take in their investing. And a lot of times it's going to be the difference between how much stock they have in their portfolio versus how, many, how much exposure to the bond market that they have. Um, that's usually where most of the definition comes from in the portfolio, depending on your risk level. But there are some other things that can play into that as well.
1: Right. So if you're going to lose sleep at night, if you lose any money, then you're definitely going to be more on the conservative side. But if you're kind of the, hey, roll the dice, let's kind of see what this happens, that's more on the aggressive side. And a lot of people fall right in the middle. They're willing to take some risk, but they're not necessarily willing to be super aggressive. And we call that moderate. So you can use a risk tolerance quiz um, that you can find on the Internet. You can find it through a financial office like ours. Um Or, you know, kind of just delve into your own personal feelings about risk. But understanding how much risk is going to go into your portfolio is absolutely step one in managing a portfolio. All right, the next thing that you want to do is you want to figure out what your research strategy is. So how is it that you're going to go about deciding what to put into your investment portfolio? So, um. You know, a research strategy is going to be something like utilizing a paid service. So maybe you follow Morningstar or maybe you follow um, the Motley Fool or something like that, an online service that's talking about stock picks and things like that. But when you're when you're developing a research strategy, the most important thing for you to be aware of is you want to look for unbiased data. Okay, a lot of the paid services are not necessarily unbiased if they're recommending single stocks here and there because um, they may or may not own that stock themselves, and then they're influencing people to buy and sell it, which can influence the value of that person's own portfolio. So you have to be a little careful about some of those paid services, about whether or not there's some bias or not inside their advice. If you, um, like, my my favorite company to use is Morningstar. Kelsey, we use that a lot.
0: We do, yes. It's a good good, uh, research tool.
1: It really is. And Morningstar is just an independent compiler of data. So they don't have their own funds. They don't have their own, um, you know, bias because they just compile data and report data. So that's one of the reasons that I like using them for research. So once you have figured out the tools that you're going to use for research, the third step is to determine what is it that you want to be invested in, okay? There's going to be a number of different ways that you can go with this. You can use stocks or bonds. You can use mutual funds. You can use alternatives. So, you know, there's a lot of different things out there that you can do. So Kelsey, when you're researching mutual funds, give us a short example of what are the things you're looking for in a good mutual fund.
0: In a good mutual fund, we're looking for a number of different factors. Uh, One of the first things we need to look at is what asset class does it fall into. Um, All mutual funds are going to have some kind of uh, focus or goal, and it might be very sector-specific, such as it might be all real estate, or it might be all oil companies inside of it. Um, others are going to be more um, general, but like a
1: broad based, like kind a of broad fund. based, you
0: mm-hmm. can get in an allocation fund that might have a little bit of everything. And it might be an allocation fund that's geared toward more conservative or aggressive. So first thing I would do is look at the asset class to see, you know, what kind of a fund is this. And then after that, you'd start looking at there's data after data after data available on these funds (laughs) Um, but a good a good starting point would be a percent rank within category which is a fancy way to say how is it competing against its its peer group
1: is it above average or is it below average
0: exactly so um, that's a pretty good uh, uh, number to look at and it'll help you get an idea of of everybody doing this exact same thing there might be you know 200 or there might be 15,000 doing the same thing. How How is it doing against the that peer group?
1: All right, so let's dig into that for a second. So let's use large company mutual funds as an example. Um, there are, let's say, 2,500 different mutual funds out there that might fall in the large company growth area. And all of those mutual funds are investing in large growth companies, which means there's kind of a select group of stocks that they're investing in. But they're all kind of investing in the
0: same pool, right? They're all kind of doing the same thing. Yeah,
1: exactly. So you got twenty-five different, twenty-five hundred different choices, all investing in a similar pool of stocks. So how do you know which ones good and which ones are not so good? How do you know which of the mutual funds are doing a better job with the timing of their buying and selling the different stocks that are available? Well, you know that by using one of those research tools like Morningstar. So Kelsey was mentioning this percent rank within category. And I think that's actually a really important tool. So the way that works is if there's 2,500 large company growth funds, then theoretically about half of them are above average and about half of them are below average. And whatever that middle one is, is average, right? Correct. Okay. So using a good research tool is going to help you understand who has the above average performance and who has the below average performance and if they have been able to maintain that level over time. So I think that's a a really good piece of information that you can gain as you're doing the research in your portfolio management. All right, so that gives you kind of a little bit of an understanding about how to look at mutual funds. Let's talk about um, stocks, though. Stocks are a totally different animal than a mutual fund is.
0: Absolutely, you're holding one individual company instead of a fund holding, you know, two hundred plus companies.
1: Exactly. So there's there's more risk in holding a single stock versus a single mutual fund. Um, so there's no question about that. But the old investment axiom goes with higher risk, comes the potential for higher rewards. So there's good reason that people like to buy individual stocks because, you know, maybe you'll hit a home run with them (laughs) or maybe it'll go bankrupt. We're going to hope for the home run, but, you know, (laughs) you never know what's going to happen there. So when you're researching your stocks, there's a different set of criteria that you want to look at from a stock research perspective. So the the stock side of things, um, you really want to develop your own handful of criteria that matters to you. So maybe you're looking at the P.E. ratios, maybe you're looking at the dividend histories, maybe you're going so far as to look at the balance sheets of the company, the P&L of the company, the cash position of the company. Maybe you're looking at their forward projections, maybe you're looking at past quarterly earnings, things like that. But your, your stock research should have a, a set group of criteria that you're looking at for all stocks if you're going to manage your own portfolio. Um, one of the things that's out there that you can look at is what other analysts are saying. So you can, you can look to see, number one, how many analysts are actually tracking a stock, and then whether or not they're giving it a buy or a hold or a sell criteria, which is kind of helpful. And a lot of times they'll also set a price target, which is what they think that stock is likely to grow to. And that price target is a good thing for you to consider uh, whether or not you want to buy into the stock and when you might wanna sell it. So those are some things to think about. Let's talk about alternatives for a minute. There is um, another asset class that is called Alternatives. It's different than stocks and bonds. Um, in fact, we um, are going to be having an advanced investment strategy seminar on June the 14th. And we're going to be talking about things that are beyond traditional stocks and bonds. So go to our website, strictfinancialservices.com, if you'd like to sign up for the advanced investment seminar. And we're going to be talking about some of the different types of alternatives out there. So Kelsey, tell us a little bit about Alternatives.
0: Mary, alternatives are this whole different way of investing. So there's most people are familiar with stocks and bonds, either owning a uh, company or lending money to a company through the bond um, route. Alternatives take this entirely different approach and they are investing in a lot of the same types of companies and things like that. But they're doing it in a different way that usually um, allows them to have a completely independent performance separate from stocks and bonds. Uh, Stocks and bonds tend to have an inverse relationship. Not always, but more commonly. Meaning that if the
1: stock market goes down, frequently the bonds go up, or if the stock market's going up,
0: frequently the bonds aren't doing as well. That's an inverse relationship. Uh, The alternatives act independently of those. So the stock market could be going up or down, and the bond market could be going up or down, and alternatives are kind of doing their own thing on the side. And it can be a really nice... uh, uh, alternative for <laughs> that's what they're <laughs> named for um, but it can be a really nice diversifier in your portfolio to help keep the portfolio value more stable when the market is very volatile.
1: Right, We call that correlation. What Kelsey's talking about is a low correlation to the market, meaning that the market can juke and jive and do whatever it's going to do, but the alternatives with a low correlation to the market are going to try to make money regardless of what the market's doing. Now, they don't always, I mean, alternatives don't have any guarantee of making money, just like stocks and bonds don't have any guarantee of making money, but what they're, what they're designed to do is to provide a hedge against volatility and attempt to make money regardless of what the market's doing. Now, Alternatives can come in a lot of different shapes and forms. They could be physical assets like precious metals or real estate or commodities. It could be currencies, it could be managed futures. they're They're very much their own animal, and they're they're definitely more sophisticated than what a stock or a bond is, which is why we're having a seminar to talk about all these things <laughs> that are a little bit different. Um, so join us for that. again on June fourteenth. We're going to go ahead and talk now a little bit about what are some of the problems that can happen when you're managing your own portfolio. And I think that the absolute biggest challenge that people have when they're managing a portfolio comes down to one word, emotion. So human emotion creates the biggest drops in value in portfolio management more than anything else. In fact, there's some interesting statistics. Kelsey, tell us about those statistics.
0: Sure. So, people when they're using their emotion have a tendency to buy and sell at the wrong times because exactly. they're 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 buying when things look good and the market's going up, which means you're pretty much paying a premium for your investments, and they start to get nervous and sell when uh, the market's going down, which means you're selling your your investments basically on sale. So. Uh, some statistics. These are just absolutely mind blowing. But if you miss the 10 best days in the market over the last 20 years, so just miss 10 great days out of the last 20 years, your returns are reduced by almost 50%.
1: So half, you could lose half of the potential of the growth of your portfolio by missing 10 days out of 20 years. That is just mind blowing. Mm-hmm.
0: Phenomenal. And, and most people will say, oh, well, I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to get in or get out at the right time. (laughs) But here, here's the thing. Nobody has that magic crystal ball that I've met yet. So, and, and the kicker on this really is that six of those 10 best days in the market cycle occurred within two weeks of the 10 worst days. Meaning when the 10 worst days happened somewhere in the middle of that and within the two weeks after Six of the 10 best days happened. So if you were out for those bottom days and didn't get back those. in time, you were mm-hmm. out for over half of those 10 best days. So, And then your
1: your issue is just magnified even worse if you pull out because you get scared right on one of those worst days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have done the exact opposite of what smart investing has done. You have bought high and sold low then the chances of you feeling strong enough to recover and pull the trigger to go back in right away are very small. And then you're going to miss the up, which occurs fairly frequently in a short period of time following the bottom. So um, this emotional component here I think is huge in terms of um, not getting the results that you want to get from your portfolio. So the best way to... um, guard against that is to have some what we call buy and sell criteria that you've defined for yourself and if you define your buy and sell criteria ahead of time then as long as you follow that you can eliminate the emotional response pretty much you can be sure that whatever your emotions are telling you to do and in investing is probably the exact wrong thing <laughs> but most of us are not um, strong enough to to ignore those emotions now, if you've set out some specific buy or sell criteria for yourself ahead of time and you determine that these is this is how you're going to trade, no matter what that market's doing, these are your parameters, then you can, to some degree, divorce yourself from that emotion and protect yourself from making a poor choice in the heat of the moment. So, okay, um, there is a, a theory... Um, that is out there too, that sometimes people use that's called Sell in May and Go Away. And it's a theory that a lot of do-it-yourselfers like to follow. Sell in May and Go Away follows the idea that um, a lot of returns happen in the first five months of the year. And then we have a summertime slump where there's not a lot of activity, there's a flatness to the market. And then we follow that up with um, oftentimes the worst month of the year is October. And so a lot of times people will sell in May and go away and then they come back into the market mid to late October or November, okay? So there's a, there's a very prevalent theory out there in do-it-yourselfers that that's a smart pattern for investing. But the research actually shows, and this is according to Oppenheimer, the research shows that since 1926, the sell-in-may-and-go-away theory has actually reduced returns since
0: 1926 by 76%. Oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> three three quarters of your return gone just by following that strategy. Right. And it's a strategy that
1: sounds smart. But really isn't, and the reason that it's not is because you miss the extremes, you miss the best days, you miss the spikes, you miss things like that. And so, um, if if you're going to have a buy and sell criteria, it really should be a buy and sell criteria that is specific to your mutual fund, specific to your stock, or specific to your alternative, not a timing strategy like the sell in May and man go away strategy. Okay, let's talk a little bit about ongoing monitoring. We worked with a gentleman who likes to do it himself and had done it himself for a number of years. And then he just got kind of caught up in life, right? Because life happens. That's just part of the way things are. Things that sparked our interest sometimes no longer hold our interest or something happens within your family and you start spending more time thinking about other things. So this person had um, gotten kind of caught up in life. And even though he'd done a great job of managing his portfolio, um, he no longer was really doing any level of ongoing monitoring of it. And what that ended up doing is resulting in some large losses that he could have avoided. And so my point with telling you this story is that The monitoring part of your portfolio is really, really critical. I mean, not doing the ongoing monitoring is like starting a marathon, but dropping out of the race at mile 12. I mean, you just, you didn't get to the finish line and you're not going to have a good shot at getting to the finish line in your investments if you don't actually have something in place to do ongoing monitoring. So You know, um, Kelsey and I spend a lot of time doing ongoing monitoring with our clients. In fact, that's one of the things that we pride ourselves on. If you're going to do ongoing monitoring, you really want to have a set time period that you're looking at things. Kelsey, how often would you say it's a good idea to look at things?
0: We look at things quarterly. Uh, If you do too much more often than that, it it can become a a little excessive. Mm -hmm. uh, Because investments usually are meant to buy into and hold for at least... A certain amount of time, and and it's not necessarily day trading activity uh, that we'd like to participate in. So, quarterly, uh, semi annually, you know, some people uh, look at their and monitor their 401ks only annually. That might be okay as long as, you know, the monitoring that you're doing is thorough. Um, But there's a lot of different strategies, but I think quarterly is kind of a good time frame.
1: So if you have found yourself like this gentleman who did a really good job of monitoring himself or managing things himself and then kind of stepped away from it, or if you're somebody who just really doesn't want to do any of this yourself, but really wants to work with someone who has um, a good monitoring system in place, we'd love for you to give us a call. Um, Today, we're going to give away a free portfolio review to the first 10 callers. Um, This is something we only do about once a quarter is give these away like this. Normally, we charge $2. $250 Hundred and fifty dollars to do a portfolio review, and in a portfolio review, what we do is tell you what we think is above average and below average in the portfolio you have. We'll tell you whether or not your portfolio is aligned with the risk tolerance level that you're telling us that you have, and kind of get down into the good, the bad, and the ugly of what you're doing.
0: Yeah, this is a really valuable uh, process to go through, and everybody that we've had that's gone through it has come away with a different understanding of their investments and how they're uh, set up. And we're looking at more than just, oh, your investment did well or didn't do well. There's a lot more to designing a portfolio than that. So
1: exactly be helpful. So if you're a do-it-yourselfer and just want a review of it, or if you're somebody that wants some help, give us a call, 605-217-3555. First 10 callers will have the free portfolio review, again, valued at $250. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. And then don't forget, join us for our Advanced Investment Strategy Seminar that's going to be held on June 14th. Thanks for listening to Money Guide with Mary Sterk.
0: Call us at 605-217-3555. The first five callers will receive a free portfolio review valued at $250. offered through Sterk Financial Services, which is not affiliated with Woodbury Financial. Sterk Financial Services is located at 350 Oak Tree Lane, Suite 150, Dakota Dunes, South Dakota 57049, and can be reached at 605-217-3555.